welcome back to like Razorblade Pie, a bite-sized book club about the short speculative fiction of Harlan Ellison, my favorite author. I'm Michael Swaim, your intrepid host, and uh, sometimes I have a long spiel about the introductory uh, stuff surrounding the story in question of the day. Today I don't, so we're just going to dive right in, and that's because uh, I believe I read this on and sent it to my guest on the only place I could find it, which is like a, a website where there's a Xerox copy of an old magazine dated October 37th. That's weird. No, October 1981. Uh, uh, and the and an illustration of Mr. Potato Head arguing with Mrs. Potato Head. That's like the main thing. So not the ideal reading experience, um, but he muscled through anyway. Hey, you know him, you love him. We usually talk Charlie Kaufman. This time we're not. It's Brooks Brown. How are you doing, Mr. Swain? <laughs> I'm doing great. Better now with those dulcet tones in my ears. Oh, I do what I can. Uh, I do what I can. <laughs> Uh, so first things first, uh, it, it came out. I mean, I asked you to be on just cause you're my pal, but I had assumed you were familiar with Ellis and you're extremely well read. Um, but you seem to light up to some degree. So what's your, uh, Ellison relationship overall? Well, I, I actually have a, a long running, uh, personal relationship in a couple ways. Uh, so first one of the uh, books that one of the stories, I shouldn't say books because it was way too early in the world for me to read really complex sci-fi, but I did play this lovely video game called I Have No Mouth mm -hmm. and I Must Scream that absolutely, uh, we'll just say was a uh, enlightening moment. It was an adventure game in the realm of sort of uh, the, the Monkey Islands or Salmon Max's uh, King's Quest. Uh, yeah, exactly like those. <laughs> but, but, also, but, but darker and smarter and uh, a lot more interesting uh, to say the least, although I'm still a fan of the original two monkeys. Uh, the game, the game, uh, and what would turn out to be the story in the book, uh, would definitely have a lasting impact on kind of, I don't know, uh, my sort of swing when it comes to where I land on a lot of entertainment. I like the darker, more fucked up stuff. Sensibility. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, it happened to be when I was working for Starbreeze, I was leading, um, you know, a lot of licensing plays and trying to find partners for games or VR or this and that. And I happened to uh, spend a lot of time with Ellison's estate um, in the year before he passed. Uh, he oh. was very ill uh, to try yeah. to figure out how we might bring some of it to bear. And uh, it was one of those things that uh, uh, I'll never forget because the guy who was like handling his estate was his hardcore Ellison like fan. But on top of that, someone who had kind of worked with him and really cared a lot about him. And we bonded when I told him. Uh, that I wanted to bring some of Ellison's works to VR, and he rolled his eyes, and I said, no, no, I want to use them to ruin people's day. And his eyes lit up. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people, when they pitch Ellison stuff, they end up in that Philip, Philip K. Dick thing, where it's like, I want to make something cool that blows people's minds. And and Ellison was, um, uh, like myself, in a, in, a, in a way, a bit of a misanthrope, to say the least. And... Um, mm -hmm. I Famous think, curmudgeon. Yeah. Uh, it's been mentioned before on this podcast, like ranges from, oh, it's like cute how he's like a curmudgeon and very blunt to people who are like, I actually hate him. I think he's a mean man. Yes. It seemed to be the reports that it's that whole spread. <laughs> yeah, very much. And and so you, I, I, that was a, a fun story. And then um, I, I do have to share that when you sent this to me, I realized I didn't have enough Ellison on my bookshelf. And so I had to find a local sci-fi store and I, I spent far too much money on a whole bunch of pulp Harlan oh, Ellison goody. books. Yeah. It made me all happy. So no, I, I'm, I'm, so I'm, a, I'm a huge Ellison fan. I'm a huge fan of unique science fiction of that era. Jack Vance and Ursula uh, Le Guin would be the others that I love from mm -hmm. that era. I'm not as much mm -hmm. of a sort of Asimov Heinlein type. I like the, the weirder shit that pushes a darker line. Bradbury? Uh, less so not as much. Yeah. Uh, I think he has great sci-fi concepts. Certainly not as dark though. No, that's, it's the uh, darkness I like. Again, this is not saying the others aren't great Phil writers. K. Dick goes trippy. Yeah. They all have their lane. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, awesome. Well, yeah, I, I know it. I've come to love him so much that I will buy stuff with his name on it just cause I haven't heard it of it before. Same here. And, uh, I was in a cool bookstore in Detroit and saw a thing called the glass teat by Harlan Ellison. I was like, Oh, is this short story I've never heard of? 
And it turns out that it's reprints of uh, magazine articles from like the late 80s to early 90s where he was a TV reviewer for a couple years in there. So it's like Harlan Ellison opining on this week's episode of like Jake and the Fat Man or whatever. Um, very boring to flip through. Um, but let's get I, into I actually, it. Not- I actually like <laughs> it. I have a copy. I have a copy behind me. Oh, um, Glass Teeth. Okay. Yeah. And I actually thought it was, it, it is not what I thought as well. It's an interesting the, artifact, I guess. The cover... <laughs> is a lie like it Mm -hmm. the cover is very cool looking and like oh my god and then yes the inside is far less it's not normal elson i still liked reading it because it was really weird i just found it super surreal to read it is because he still writes to the top of his intelligence so it's like if i mean it's if tv guide was written by einstein it's very strange right um hunter reading hunter s thompson felt like that a teacher introduced i'm like this was really journalism? No shit? This? This reads like a real book. And he's like, yeah, that's what was interesting about Hunter S. Thompson. Um, cool. Okay, so let's dive in. I haven't even mentioned the story yet. Um, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, of course. Probably one of his biggest hits. I feel like this one was a big hit, but I don't know how I determine that because there's no charts of sci-fi popularity. But I've heard it mentioned by other people I know who love Ellison a lot. It's called On the Slab. And Brooks, if you wouldn't mind getting us through the boring part, um, what did what was the story about in a nutshell? Just pitch the premise to the audience, please. Yeah, a poor farmer uh, who's got a small failing apple orchard uh, that happens to be struck by lightning all the time uh, mm-hmm. comes to unearth a, a beast, a gigantic human type thing uh, that uh, Fucks with his head, and then lo and behold, it's King Kong. <laughs> I mean, I just it's King Kong with an existential <laughs> crisis uh, mixed in, um, because mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. ends up becoming this big uh, show piece that people come from all over to see. Instead of studying, instead of trying to figure out, it it becomes a gawking uh, a carnival, and lo and behold, it turns out that it, the beast is not dead. It's this giant sort of pseudo human, and in his, I'm, I mean, spoilers, I guess. Oh yeah. Um, we're there. Yeah, we're there. It's, it's, it's three pages, four pages. It's nothing. So (laughs) spoilers, uh, but you could quickly read it in the gap between now and when he spoils it. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Um, and it ends with, um, the guy who's kind of the, the huckster, uh, you know, guy who owns the space and is being the guy who showed King Kong off to the world. Uh, the, the monster, the beast, this giant human starts talking sort of to him. Uh, as he's dying, as death is taking him and, uh, says to him, uh, I, I am what you would be if you could earn it. Or what was the phrasing exactly? If you deserved it. If you were worthy. You were worthy. Um, which is a downer ending. (laughs) (laughs) Super, super downery. Um, yeah. And highly implied that it's also the Prometheus myth, right? He says, you brought us fire. Um, he's got, he's got sense for it. Yeah. Um, yeah, because the, the vulture comes and eats out his liver or heart. It varies based on your translation of the myth. But that's it. Thank you very much. Um, why do you think I paired this story with you? Because that's another game of this podcast, is there's very particular reasons I picked each story and paired it with that person. Well, so uh, I hope I this have, one's fairly obvious. Well, it's not. I have two theories. <laughs> oh, good. And I, there's a good chance See, they're both wrong. Hard too hard um, well they, so there, there's a chance they're both wrong so the first is mm-hmm. what i would say is the surface reason which is i have been very outspoken on how i adore uh de- playing with death what death means what life means uh and here is basically a fable about uh you know the death of the farmer the class struggle that is sort of within it the finding out that the capitalist who sort of takes it over who finds his work to be deeply important and and valorizes himself and lies to himself, but it turns out he's basically cursed humanity <laughs> by mm-hmm. by doing it. Um, that shit I'm always on fire with, and I talk like that even in my personal life or at work. I'm awful like that. So that's one possibility. The other is, and it's uh, I don't think it's the reason you chose, but the reason this story actually resonates deeply with me is I've experienced being that dude. Uh, I spent a lot of years doing um, anti-bullying campaigns. Uh, I was a student at Columbine. And uh, lost a lot of friends. And I spent a long time uh, sort of believing I was doing stronger, more powerful work, that I was important, or that the work I was doing 
was because it made people happier, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And, uh, there is a shift in my life that happened after about a decade of it that I started to be able to see that the work I was doing was more ego driven. Uh, it wasn't actually making the world better that I was service in service of things I wasn't super proud of, um, and it's across the board and, uh, made me take sort of a deep, deep, hard look at myself. It's one, this book, this, this story is one I'd, I'd read before, um, but that's why mm -hmm. it sticks with me today, even reading it again after so many years. Um, it's, I mean, it's a story about how we fool ourselves into believing the silly things that we're doing are important when really there's much more important things that can be done. Yeah. What's his name? Neller, I think. Yes. Yeah. Neller. Yeah. Frank Neller. Um, uses the word ennobled and feels and talks about how he's doing good work and starts sleeping in the room with the guy because he deserves uh, it. <laughs> right. Exactly. And pointedly, he came in minutes before a team of scientists were about to orchestrate, like, you know, it's removal to a public space where it can be studied. Instead, he swept in and for $3,000 flat, like secured all rights to it. Yeah, it's it's uh, a pretty hard line. Again, I, I bring up King Kong because I think it's pretty clear that that's a He little... calls it the ninth wonder of the world. Cause in King reference, yeah. Eighth. yeah. It's, it, there's, I mean, there's the, hard, the hard reference alone, but... The idea that, hey, there's this thing that literally changes all of humanity. And if we understood it, it, it would change the course of humanity. But we want to sell tickets to it. <laughs> um, yeah, that, right. <laughs> that, um, that feeling, I, it's a thing. I, I mean, I've, I've struggled with, uh, uh, you know, the work I do, the work I have done. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why it, those are the two reasons. Uh, I, I don't think you know the second one. The second one's more personal. but. Uh, possible. No. We've talked lightly oh about God. that oh shit. Oh my gosh. Bullseye. Um, but yeah, it's, I have different, you know, there's uh, different friendships bring out different parts of each other, I would say. Mm -hmm. And like Abe and I will almost exclusively usually talk story structure or film or something in that realm. Um, and then like my best buddy Griffin, cause I've known him since I was five. He's my repository where we can dwell on the past and remember, you know, we, we often talk about, remember when that shit happened <laughs> or whatever. Um, and I feel like you're my philosophy guy oh, and I'm flattered. Deleuze has obviously come up in the Kaufman episodes we've done, but not just philosophy. I feel like you're my big thinker guy. Oh. Uh, I love to ponder big things, and I feel like you're a pattern seer, a trend seer, a sociology, a history, a philosophy guy, um, and into archetypes, when you know, and and the abstraction and the things that we build with our minds, which not everyone is, or you know, a lot of people want to talk about. I would say the majority of story imbibers actually want to live in a world that feels cool with characters that feel like friendly and remind them of people they know. I like hard. This is why I love sci-fi short stories. I just like, just what's your idea? Yep. Like these people are fake anyway. What's your idea about the nature of life or whatever? Bake that shit in. Well, it's why I have um, so much trouble finding good things to read that's fiction. Because I, I, it, I, it's the reason I have uh, behind me, I have uh, probably 1,400, 1,500 books, I think at last count. And of those, mm -hmm. I want to say 50 of them are fiction. Like there's a reason for that. And I don't, it's tough for me to find things that are interesting that aren't just sort of retreading the same uh, Lord of the Rings kind of, hey, there's a bunch of people and really it's the, the real ring is the friendship we made along the way. Um, or what gets me is be. moral duality. Yeah. Anytime a fantasy series that claims to be epic goes, there's like a darkness and a light. I go like, I'm out, dude. <laughs> it's so boring. <laughs> it's yeah, so it's, not it's tough. And it's, why, it's, it's also why I love Ellison because I think he's, he's in the, um, like he's in the strange love category for a reason. Um, mm -hmm. uh, not to mention that this takes place in, I believe Rhode Island, uh, which is yes, like not, I, that's not an accident. <laughs> so, oh yeah. Very cool detail this time, uh, that I never picked up before. Uh, I mean, it's there very obviously, I guess I just didn't recall it, but he talks about, uh, Poe and Lovecraft having been in Rhode Island while they wrote some of their more notable works and sort of loosely ties it to maybe it was the influence of Prometheus being buried there. I'm like, that's a very cool thought. Like maybe Lovecraft and Poe were tuned into actually how Love primordial, it. like how cosmic horror really was. Yeah. But no, I'm flattered. Cool. I'm flattered you think of me that way, Mike. I oh, love that. Good. 
Um, one time it was just, well, it's Bridget's house. Like you're super competitive. They fight in this one. Um, so you got a pretty good one, but, uh, I'm going to shuffle the, you know what? I, I'm just going to like, let it rip and freestyle. Cause I do send questions out, but I, I feel I like, did, did not you read find the, the story impactful, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. We're already in the midst of it. So, um, I like to ask about style before super like getting super deep into the meaning which is of course the juiciest best part but uh did you notice or do how does harlan's style hit you because obviously you've read a breadth of it and something we've experienced on this show is it like i mean he had a long career but also he seems to get off on being very different <laughs> at different well, in different stories some are transparent but horrifying like i have no mouth some are like very whimsical and folklorish like repent harlequin and then some are super tri- are super trippy and psychedelic where he actually is clearly a master of writing and breaks formats in a way that is innovative um where would you say on the slab lands and like what's your favorite harlan Super trippy or <laughs> buttoned down. Or I what? mean, I, I like, to your point, the thing I love the most is that none of his books or stories are about the characters. Uh, mm-hmm. Often you see writers, uh, you naturally build intention. Oh, what's going to happen to them? And this, this on the slab does my favorite thing. And Harlan does it a lot. He tells us at the beginning, don't get attached to this dude. He kills himself. It's like the second sentence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, he's going to kill himself. Don't care about this guy. This ain't the point. The real meaning is a little bit later. And I adore that so very much. It, it allows you, it allows me as a reader to go, cool. He's recounting sort of facts and the story. And I'm not supposed to be attached to actually almost any of these characters. He's very upfront for what happens to each one of them with Neller being the exception, but Neller is ultimately our vehicle in the story. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, he makes it about the idea rather than any character. And he does it from the second sentence. And I adore that. Yeah, that's a handy. He does that repeatedly. I think if you blow up the surprise, it's a handy way to almost immediately draw the attention to the meta and say, you will feel dread and, and tension, but it's not about the fate of this dude. Like, don't plant yourself on the street level. We are the gods watching this shadow play, especially in this story. And I'm teaching you something here. So, like, watch the master work and don't think about the little people. Think about the story that I'm telling you. Um, A lot of his stories come from, like, a God's eye view, which I do think ties into an ego-driven. He's he's an ego-driven dude in large part, I think. Um, But, and yet... And as he opines at length in his intros, uh, which are famously like super revealing across his career, um, he does have a deep abiding love of or wanting not wanting to be lonely, being scared of the things a human, you know, do I not bleed wanting wanting the best for the people he loves. Um, But he finds that he when he looks at humanity as a whole, he can't help but be like pretty cynical and disgusted that it basically sucks. Yeah. Uh, And and he he even oscillates. It's. I know I would never say Harlan Ellison's a person who's filled with hope, but, uh, and this may be me putting myself in him, but, uh, his, uh, misanthropy ha- isn't completely nihilistic. Like it's clear that he has a that's, part of him that's right, begging yeah. for turn turn this around. We can fix this. Come on people. This, we don't have to do these things. These are warning tales. I'm, I'm like, it's a right. completely different mentality than literal nihilistic. We're fucked. Get over it. It's over. That's true. He has a lot of like alacrity about him. Like he still wants to tackle the thing. He's just really mad. <laughs> He's like mad as hell and he can't take it anymore. Yeah. You feel through a lot of his stories. Uh, yeah, I like that. And so we've hinted at a little bit, but just to lay it out for people who don't read along, which is very silly because it's a much more rewarding listening experience. And like we said, it's three pages long, three pages, just read it. But um, I want to talk about the, it's so much crammed into three pages also. So basically the ending is Prometheus, who is the, uh, you know, the Titan or like Greek God that gave humanity knowledge and fire and made it so that we were set off on the little path of our tech tree and built up into what we are today. And so he asks, um, are we related? I guess is the, how I interpreted it. Like, are we blood related? Like, are you, um, ancient man? And then you evolved into us implying we're more sophisticated. Right. And, and we were the result of more refinement. And he goes, no, 
um, I, I started you at level zero, like, and you were supposed to join us someday, but you didn't do good. So that's not going to happen now. Um, and then beneath that, that we get the part of the sin is that they, the crass commercialization of that, which should give us awe. And, uh, I just think that's a lot to weave into three fucking pages. It's very, very well, well written, uh, and, and is attacking like life with a nuance that you don't usually see through pulp sci-fi. Um, but what I really wanted to ask is, uh, so like, okay, even today, Jen at the store was saying, uh, I'm seeing all the, a huge spike in UFO stuff on TikTok. Um, okay. That's interesting. Well, whatever going on with your day. And it's just amazing to me because like, what if, <laughs> what if it was really happening and proof of alien life was happening today? It's amazing that it's already packaged as a million TikToks. And of course it inevitably would be. And we've reached a stage of digesting life and turning it into little jokes and memes so fast. Um, that no matter what happens, like if Jesus came back, there would be a bunch of takes, including really hilarious jokes about it so fast. And that's pretty weird to me. I just think that's weird. Have we lost a place in our lives for awe or God or whatever you want to call it for Prometheus? Like we're not allowed, we we're yeah. not allowed awe. Uh, the, one of the great challenges of any secular society is how we replace the ritualistic and uh, sort of spiritual nature that religion gives people. I'm not saying it's necessarily even a positive thing, but it does impart on people this sort of uh, grand feeling and emotion. Uh, one of the challenges with the secular society, like we have, is that it's impossible to almost believe in anything. Uh, you you have this sort of naturally flitting, sort of postmodernist view of things that come out of social media. We've got to stay attuned to thing X, thing Y, be watching for it, but also be guarded against it. Guarded against what? I don't know. And on top of it, information. Well, and on right. top of it, we've got uh, capital pouring itself into us that we have to utilize to make our lives better. What does that mean? I don't know, but we better fucking do it or else it's a, like the anxiety. Or you've wasted your life. The anxiety right. that's caused. And it's, it's one of the things I do love about the way that this ends that I think is actually more uh, existentially horrifying <laughs> actually than, than a lot of other works that he did is Prometheus as a self-sacrifice giving like wanted to give fire to man. The other God said, no, don't do that. We'll and, punish and he you. said, fuck right. it. I'm doing it anyway. They deserve it. And it ends with him basically saying, well, I shouldn't have done that. Like that's basically, <laughs> I really got fucked on this yeah, deal. Nice, Dang. nice job assholes. Um, <laughs> and, and that, that if we found Prometheus, which is not, I wouldn't even say like a top five myth that people would expect to return. If Prometheus sure. was found, no one would believe it. People would doubt it. He'd be eaten and gone and destroyed. And no one would really know. There'd be a, a week or two of cool memes. To your point, it would be packaged. And I think, again, this is what Harlan's entire point is, is we just can't help ourselves. We can't wait. We can't take a few extra hours. We have to naturally go to Whatever's going to generate capital, whatever's going to generate cash, we've got to save the farm. We've got to do this. We've got to do mm -hmm. these things. And those people get to pretend they're doing, you know, great work. Uh, look at, uh, I, I, I would compare, uh, if we're talking about current times, when, when Frank Neller's talking to the reporter, it's, it's Elon Musk. Like that's, it's, it's the same mentality. It's, uh, I'm sending people to space. It's, uh, there's nothing more I'm grand. I'm changing the world. I'm changing the world. I I'm, make billions of dollars. And yeah. people sit in my cars and they're just, they know that they're sitting in the future and look at this and look at that. And it's, it's bullshit, flatly bullshit <laughs> in, in every single yeah. way, but people buy into it and they buy into it really hard. And it's, uh, it's the nature of, you know, not just America, but capital. It, it's one of the natures of the sort of system that we live within and how we are produced within it. And I think the story also alludes to the fact that, uh, you know, the action often comes before the action that's been patterned into you comes and the story in your head of why did I do that comes later. 
I think it's really interesting that Frank Neller starts sleeping with the giant and feels like what he's doing is very valuable work because he sees people look at it and he sees awe in their faces, but he sees awe in a five minute increment that they paid for, which is of course very different than we feel like awe is supposed to be or our experience with God or the supernatural is supposed to be. And so you mentioned that, you know, faith or uh belief in supernatural ability to have awe like that that old school cathedral sistine chapel awe people used to have when we didn't know when we didn't feel we knew the secrets of the universe um yeah well and and it's it's interesting that it can become anything like for this guy he's like uh oh this is it for me it's uh i'm already there i'm i'm a good guy i'm you know parceling the cyclops out to people I bet that like enriches their life in some well, way. He, I can't quite elucidate, but I'm a good guy. He puts the he and puts that's its own form. He of puts faith. it on himself. He he pretends and acts and believes in a serious capacity that he's responsible for that. That he's the one right. ennobling people. That he's doing these like, and he's not. He's done none of it. This is again. I think one of the underlying things I adore about this is it's. Uh, it's very clear that it's literally the God who gave man fire, gave men mm-hmm. ideas, gave like, it's a God who gives shit and makes you better. And here is a man who has taken that God and pretended that his way of restricting access by making it private property, by selling tickets, by doing all these things, somehow he's contributed or made these people ennobled when in reality, it's mm-hmm. just the God doing it. But he's happy to take credit. like. Underneath it all, it is a it is a deep, deep critique of the very idea that any of us are actually ennobling anyone, or any one of us are actually making like that's not how it works. That's <laughs> not how it works. Very few times ever you could even say such a thing. But we like those stories. We like them for ourselves. And instead, the reality is this: this this God's looking at us and going, "Well, I, I really, you fucked up. You could have been amazing." Instead, you're like playing these weird little games with money and tickets and thinking you're special. Like I gave Mm -hmm. us, I gave you fire. This is what you did with it. Yeah, it actually reminds me of something I learned going through AA and I think applies more globally. uh, The idea that, you know, you, if you're really down in the dumps, kind of the thing that seems least interesting to do would be to like go out into your community and somehow serve someone else. You're already depleted and hurting. You're the one who needs to be served or whatever, but it is a total brain hack. And of course you could look at it the cynical way and say, well, then no one's ever actually being altruistic because they feel good about themselves by doing that. But it does work. Uh, and you don't have to, it points to something I want to get into next, which I think is very Deleuzian, which is that, we tend to think that we do things for reasons, but actually we reason because we did things. Yes. <laughs> Meaning like, um, yeah, so I I feel like uh, this guy is doing that by, uh, you know, why did I do that? Oh, it must be because I'm a good guy, because that's the narrative I want to hold in my head. And Deleuze talks about uh, differences originating identity rather than the other way around. And that's really what I want to like vibrate next to the story. And in a nutshell, I know Brooks knows it, but just for the listener in a nutshell, that's just like saying, um, you know, you assume that things in the universe exist and have properties. Like I'm looking at a, you know, potted plant. Um, okay. It has characteristics. The pot is hard. The plant's softer. It has aloe inside. It has spikes on it. It's a cactus. Um, and so you go like, Oh, it has qualities. And from that, I derive its identity and its characteristics. Actually, that's not true because, <laughs> and this was mind blowing to me. Um, everything in the universe can only be known comparatively. Meaning, if you were to know only cactus in a void of all other context clues, including sensory organs and shit, um, obviously it's unknowable to you. And truly, all characteristics are just a description of the difference between that thing and other things that you've experienced. Uh, And in that way, like, every, it's hard to, I really think this makes sense, and hopefully Brooks can also explain it in (laughs) in his own words. But it's like, uh, everything is nothing because everything could only exist in being dependent on something else existing. Uh, and difference is all we ever experience are the, are the differences between things. And that's interesting to me 
because of a conversation I was blessed to have on the mic with Shane Black about his belief that gods are exist to be aspirational figures and create archetypes that we will then instinctively fill. And there are ways for us to like instill those in society. The most famous, you know, the cleanest example being we create gods who are very heroic so that if you are in real life, see a baby that's about to get crushed by a car, um, you will instinctively, having been fed the story of the hero, you'll be more likely to embody that, become that and save the baby, which is good for society or whatever. Uh, I, I don't I, think I, I could disagree. I don't that. think I could disagree more with the. But now your take, please. So, your take now, please, on gods. Yeah, and their I mean, uses. so so uh, I I don't believe they necessarily have uses. I think they're extraordinarily dangerous, and mythology is dangerous. <laughs> um, the, look, but but it provides awe. Is awe not a useful emotion? I I don't believe that's what provides awe. I I, okay. I think awe awe is an emergent emotion that deals with things we don't understand and we haven't been able to recognize patterns of the more patterns we are unable to recognize or the more space of possibility that can exist within any singular experience. This is where we are apt to express awe. This is why children experience it a great deal more than people who are slightly older. <laughs> they don't know shit. They, they, they don't have the life experience to, to right. give that. Um, and, and your, your explanation of difference, not terrible, not bad, Michael, you're doing good. I'm just starting to dig into anti-Oedipus. So yeah, oh, yeah no. And, and again, uh, DGQC, feel free to read along. Um, I read it literally every week for two hours. Um, so instead of that, let's let's pull back and let's talk about like why people believe what they do. Because uh, as you said, and I think you put it really well, uh, I tend to phrase it that words are the excuses we give our emotions. Um, it, same kind of thing that uh, we, mm -hmm. we take credit for that which uh, sort of is already happening. And we give ourselves an excuse for the thing that has happened, that our body has done that we felt whatever it may be. And this sort of setup uh, goes, uh, it's a lot actually backed up by modern sort of cognitive science, but let's talk about babies. A baby who's born doesn't know breast milk, doesn't know mom, doesn't know dad. There's no like thing there. There's no, there's no symbols. It doesn't actually know, or is, is actually wholly unable to even differentiate between mom, dad, wall, me, anything there, there's nothing there. It's everything is all uh, the, it's always there. Uh, the first thing that happens and it's a biological thing. Our bodies are fascinating uh, is we haven't, there's an ache in the tummy. Uh, we're it's a dissatisfaction. It's an ache. We don't know what that is. Mommy does because she learned it and her parents learned it. Like we learned in time uh, that's hunger. And so mommy grabs, puts baby up to breast or feeds with a bottle, whatever it may be. Lo and behold, that pain is satisfied. Now, that connection, that process, that machine that has created that satisfaction, uh, it, it isn't just the only one firing off. There are a fuck ton of machines that are firing off, that are little connections made from finger, hand, eye, light, hair, uh, name a system. thing. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's, there's a ton. And that connection is remembered, but so is, you know, being wrapped in a blanket and the feeling of all of the nerves as they touch cotton or the slightly warm feeling or whatever, like these things happen, uh, continuously over time. But again, there mom said, Oh, you're hungry and puts you up here. And she calls herself mom. And she says, that's your daddy points over. And, and those things happen. That's myth-making. This is the same process. It's creating a representation saying this is something. Babies don't know the edges. They don't know the edges of, of many things. Uh, their studies show that babies don't even know they're separate from their mom until significantly further in Object. development. They don't understand that objects right, are permanent. Yeah, or, they don't have any of that. Yeah. So over time, what we're talking about is the general pattern recognition that's happening as those satisfactions or dissatisfactions or nothing happen. And we start to have edges of things defined. Oh, that's me. And that solves that. Well, I want mom boob. You don't say that necessarily, but at some point you start saying, mom, I'm hungry. And me is not mom. Me is differentiable from mom. Again, it's only defined by the difference between the two things. Yeah. And, and everything's relational. Yeah, Everything's relational, but also everything is constantly repeated. And in the repetition of things, there's always difference. We don't notice it because we tend to sort of, uh, uh just like I would say you and I don't, most people don't smell their own body odor. 
for example. Mm -hmm. You don't hear your own heartbeat until I've said that. You don't notice that your foot is uncomfortable toes inside of your shoe because until over time yeah. we become desensitized to a great deal of things as well. It's not just oversensitification. It's not just desensified. We are entire beings. And over time, we start to see ourselves as having edges, as having this, as having that. But again, all of that happens post-connection. <laughs> like the connection happens, then the satisfaction is recording. And then lo and behold, at some point, there's enough of those happening that we've been able to sort of put together that emergently out comes Michael or Brooks. And we have a, we have a, a sort of a Cartesian style subject, someone who's somewhat self-aware of what we would call that, someone who can refer to themselves as an I, as a me, and have that sort of singular conversation. But all of these things are, are myths. They're all myths that are taught to us just like gender is, just like anything else. And the space of representation does this fucked up thing because as I say, oh, cool. And you go, yeah, no, I'm your dad. I'm a man. And uh, your, your wife goes, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm your mom. I'm a woman. The baby who doesn't know the fuck of any of those things now starts to see differences. And they see differences between man and woman as an example, or being told that, oh, you're, well, you're not manning up enough. Stop crying. Be a man, mm -hmm. as an example. Or, oh, no, no, girls don't play that sport. As examples, they're very basic ones, but there's a billion of them out there. Bocce ball, obviously. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Um, a ski ball, I was thinking. But yeah, same thing. Balls, <laughs> balls sports. They shouldn't be handling balls not before at all. puberty, yeah. is the point. Yeah. Um, Unseemly. Yes, and they should be fully covered. But it, the, the idea is, over time, these words start being used. And then as, because again, you're just, the, the machines are just connecting. They don't really know man, woman, any of that. Babies don't have that. Machines don't have that. But at some point you start repressing and you start seeing images of things and the image, the myth, the story, the legend that starts telling you how to be ends up causing interior repression. Because it, again, it comes after you've already done shit. Uh, mm. the, examples of mine that I've, I've talked with friends about is I had a friend who uh, was uh, married to a woman for many years. Uh, and she turned out, uh, she turned out to be trans and left her wife. I'm sorry, I'm an old person. It's tough for my brain to make the, the right gender moves, uh, especially when you've known someone for so long. But you're putting in the work. No, um, you're coming from the right place. Yeah. It's uh, so she, she, she had to make a switch and all of the repression that had been built into making her present masculine to making her marry a woman. It was, uh, it was a thing we all knew, not like that level, but we knew that there was, this isn't who she was and mm -hmm. she knew it didn't matter. Repression was created because these ideals and these representations were put in place. So long winded story to bring it back to all of this. We have kind of two people. And I think Harlan, did a brilliant job with this. There's two people who learn the secret of Prometheus. Um, one is Frank, of course, and then the other is Gibri. Yeah, is uh, a farmer. Yeah, the farmer uh, uh, Gibri. And so George, uh, when he learns it, and he's, I don't want to like be like a, a pro rural or say anything of that, but it's he's a person of the land. He's he's working class. He's labor class. He's 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 connected to the world. Uh, in a different way than than Frank is. Uh, Frank is a capitalist rock star entertainer type. Uh, that that thing. His reaction is actually just to be uh, like it's the first thing that happens. He can't handle it and he shuts down. And and it's in, like you said in a sentence. It's uh, the Lovecraftian arc. Yes. It's he's so overawed that he can't live anymore and he cuts his own throat. Correct. <laughs> he, he realizes nothing nothing mattered anymore. It's a, he intuitively understands that it's Prometheus, it seems, is the implication. Yes. Or that it's somehow a god that shows how wanting we are. Yeah, the, the phrasing is, uh, George Gibri looked down into the crater and saw it stretched out on its back, its single green eye with two pupils glowing terribly in the morning sunlight, its left forearm bent up at the elbow, seemingly to, crutch, seeming to clutch with spread fingers at the morning air. It was as if the thing had been struck by the sky's fury as it was trying to dig itself out. For just a moment, as he stared down into the pit, George Gibri felt as if the ganglia mooring his brain were being ripped loose. His head began to tremble on his neck, and he wrenched his gaze from the impossible titan stretched out, filling the thirty-foot-long pit. In the orchard, there could be heard the sounds of insects, a few birds, and the whimpering of George Gibri. 
very different way of, of dealing with this or how it was dealt with or when it happened. Like what is mm -hmm. like, again, the types of people, what they did, how they did stuff. He doesn't even try to find sort of that setup. The rock star guy comes and he immediately puts himself in a place of self-importance in relation to this, this giant, this extraordinary God that has been found there. Doesn't give a shit until again, we get to the very end when basically, uh, he is looking at the giant, watching the giant get torn apart and killed, uh, mm -hmm. because his his heart and his his insides, his guts are being torn up by the vultures. Because again, he's Prometheus, uh, and he doesn't like that's the only time. But it's almost as if he can't possibly have that experience until Prometheus looks at him, and the gift from Prometheus to him is this. That is his fire that he hands to Frank in the last moment, is letting him know he's a piece of shit. I mean, he's still imparting knowledge. He's doing what Prometheus does. It's knowledge of the next phase. Um, because also, we haven't even mentioned, it does end with uh, the something along the lines of, I didn't write it down, but like, and it became darker that night than ever before in the world of man, but not as, not as quiet as it would soon become. Something like that. Um, so the implication being that not only is he judging them wanting, but things are going to start winding down now. <laughs> like he has the power to do that. Or it seems that we failed the test and something bad is on the horizon. Uh, it's very uh, true detective season one, Matthew McConaughey, yeah. honestly. I'll, yeah, I yeah. agree very much. Um, okay. I'm going to, so since you did a quote, I'm going to move us into Harlan's parlance Ooh. where we do quotes. Did you have any other notable quotes you wanted to read? Otherwise, I have a few to rattle off. Um, no, I'm good. Go for it. I'll see if any. Okay, I'll see if I any pop in for short me. Ones. I've got a couple, well, a but writer, I'm, I'd yeah. want to hear yours. As a career writer, I also gravitate the ones where I actually am like, hopefully, people listening understand how cool the twist or the hook is or whatever. But listen to what a good fucking writer he is as like a rock star doing word guitar solos. Um, so I love that he describes the vulture, the giant bird descending as. The darkness outside seemed to fall <laughs> like the night sky itself is enclosing you. That's very cool to me. Um, just a, this is a solid way to describe something. A very thesaurus -y line. Glass lay in a scintillant carpet across the rotunda. Mm, good mouthfeel. Um, speaking of mouthfeel, I literally am like this one is just only written down for mouthfeel. Terrible wheels, puckered skin still angrily crimson against the gentle pink of the otherwise unmarred body. That's poetry, dude. The way the sibilance and the consonants like coalesce, like coagulate at the end of the sentence. I just love that. And then the last one, good reference, Billy Joel reference. <laughs> not, not directly, but we didn't start the fire. Uh, the Macintoshes his trees produced were his hideous and wrinkled as thalidomide babies. Mm. Brutal. That's a spicy simile. <laughs> his scabrous apple trees, uh, which would lead him to cutting his own throat and bleeding out with a rabbit knife. Uh, okay, on to the silly questions to lighten the mood a little bit, because I think that was a great rousing conversation of the story's themes, probably longer than it would take you to read the story. For um, sure. It's like a, like yeah. a six-minute story. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a favorite pantheon? A favorite not pantheon. not for how they've impacted mankind but like cool cool factor and i can go first to buy your time but i think egyptians the winner man i think i really like mayan as well um you got a lot of bird guns very colorful they're uh like the stories of how you know the popol vol and stuff and the origin of the maize dough people and stuff is cool um but man egyptian with the duat and the weighing the soul against the feather well, Osiris and Anubis and shit. Just cool for cool factor. I, I have to go with, um, I mean, again, I read way too much to lose, way too much squattery. Uh, mm -hmm. It's hard for me not to go straight to the Dogons uh, out of, uh, I want to say it's Eastern Africa um, area. Oh, I don't know these. Uh, so uh, Mali, if I, Mali area, uh, the Nomo are their, were their gods and they were very much pre-civilization, pre-set up. And it is, very much an odd space of sort of uh, humanoids that are extremely extended, really sort of gorgeous bronze work that comes from the area um, and a lot of woodwork uh, at, through that setup. But uh, there's this great writer, uh, Marcel Grill, uh, G-R-I-A-U-L-E, 
who did studies and sort of spent time with the, the Dogon tribes. And their mythology is uh, deeply unique because I, I, I tend to find like the Egyptians, sure, they've got their gods, they got Osiris, god of this, god of that. Uh, you tend to see that a lot in sort of these pantheistic religions. Uh, oh, they claim uh, domains. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, that's Saturn, the god of blah, blah, blah. And this is the god of mm. chili beans. And this is the god of <laughs> like, and that stuff has always been like, it feels very self-same because most of them, again, are like all from the Fertile Crescent. It needs a way to build a religion. Well, you're also wrapping around, like you said, they're basically stopgaps, human-shaped or, you know, metaphysically shaped stopgaps for things we don't know already. So they got to fill all that space. So you're like, I don't understand yeah, but why there's all... seasons and shit. So it's probably Artemis. <laughs> yeah, but they're all also like self-same because, you know, they're all from the Fertile Crescent. So there's not a lot of huge, sure. huge changes there. It's a one of the reasons I find like the pantheistic sort of uh, versions that uh, Native Americans have or uh, that you see in like Southeast Asia uh, pre, uh, you know, uh, integration and Christianity, all fascinating. Mm -hmm. But the Dogen religion is super fascinating um, because it's, it's, it's about sort of one splitting into two, splitting into four, scattering and moving their way through. It's, it's, um, it's a very different way of sort of having as far as I've read, it's a very unique uh, sort of religion in the way that gods sort of interact with people. Nice. I will dig into that. I'm excited. Uh, yeah, I got to actually, I think that's going to be a new hobby is finding out different pantheons of gods I have never even heard of because there's way more than I'm than I'm probably imagining. There, there are a ton. And uh, uh, Griol was wonderful and I think had a handful of them, uh, mostly, mostly the Nomo. Uh, gods yeah. within the Dogons, but there's a ton of writing he did around a lot of stuff. I haven't been on that journey with gods, but I've been on that journey with uh, monsters, you know, Hellboy style. Like, man, there's some cool Indonesian, mon like how we have vampires and Wolfman, they're analogs of that, or like, you know, the Kappa in Japan and stuff. Really cool stuff. Uh, but I got to do that with gods too. Okay, we're running out of time, but I'm going to ask something dumb so we can like dispense with it quickly. Um, do you think there's anything to... Marvel superheroes being a pantheon or even trying to fill that gap for us. And what, and I mean in a crass commercialized packaged way, but is that at all trying to service the same need? Do you think, oh, or yeah. is it just a coincidence or like our superheroes gods? Uh, I, I, I wouldn't commercial fake gods. They, they, <laughs> they play a lot of the same role, but superheroes exist um, to help everyone who cares to remember that the normative exists and that there are people who will defend it. So you don't have to be too stressed of things changing. Basically, don't worry your pretty little head. I mean, that's. Please tell me of any of the movies uh, where it's not just basically returning things to what they were. Well, yeah, and that's always the problem. Like uh, David Bell on our sister network, Gamefully Unemployed, I think, really astutely pointed out that the latest Batman, the Batman, uh, everything about it, even in terms of traditional storytelling, the three act structure or whatever. Um, the lesson he learns is that there shouldn't be a Batman, which is a perfectly valid lesson Batman's encountered before. But because it's a franchise, he literally can't fulfill that promise because there has to be a sequel. Yep. So it's uh, hilarious that Batman can never uh, come out of ignorant. Like he'll never fulfill. Like if his if his trauma were to be processed and healed, he should stop being Batman. And that can never happen, which is tragic in a way. Mm. It's almost Promethean, right? Well, it's, the Joker it's, comes and it's the nature of uh, kills his family over and over and over and over. It's one of those things that uh, uh, there's a word and Marx uses it and a handful of others when they talk about people like Musk or Bezos or at the time, you know, the the wealthy are true heroes. Yeah, well, they yes. they called them um, uh, capitalist. Uh, sorry, there's a term. I want to make sure I get it right. Um, Titans. Uh, Cocksocks. No, no. Um, a capitalist eunuch. Um, oh. Which is, I think, a great phrase that we tend to believe that people who are in those positions have all the power of the world and that they can do anything they want and they exist in a space of possibility. And it's true to a point. They're able to not worry about, you know, health care. They're not worried about access, better health care, faster yeah. travel in nicer conditions. Yeah. They don't have to worry about yeah. food probably like they ever like, ever yeah. um so like they don't have the same worries but like their ability to make grand change because of the way that the system is structured 
to your point about Batman, Batman, I wouldn't even say necessarily because he's, um, because he's part of a franchise that's kind of a fourth wall breaking thing. I would say that the reason Batman can't stop that is because uh, he will run into inevitably the same problem everyone does, which is uh, there will be excuses that they can self-justify for the desire that they already have. And that's the setup. So when Jeff Bezos, for example, or Elon Musk or all these guys are out there and everyone's like, they could change the world. How? Could, could, could Bezos like step in and go, hey, uh, it's, Amazon's now a cooperative. Like they, they'd, he'd be fired and they'd bring in other people. Uh, there's the, the nature of the system is about fulfilling itself and making sure that it constantly is able to capture any errant excess that may be going on. It does its best. And this is one of those things that the superhero, I think, uh, shows perfectly. And Superman's my favorite mm-hmm. for it because people compare it's all the these straightforward, all these shitheads sure. to that. Literally, he could just save the world. Like, it would not be hard for him to take, like, a week, destroy all the weapons, you know, bring us all together. Like, literally. Well, make it so you don't need Superman anymore. Yeah, right? he could literally make himself useless. But he but he has this codependent relationship. His ego, exactly. his identity is dependent upon Earth being in peril every week. Yeah. He, yeah he, it's an enclosed It wouldn't system. be hard for him to build transportation networks that would make us able to get food anywhere we wanted. Like, like yeah. the issues with scarcity, which are all generally bullshit for the most part, we could fix those, but eh, we'd rather, you know, not do that. But I do got us, or what's your thoughts around, I would say the thing that like Buffett, Bezos, Musk could do, could totally do, is endorse, vote for, acquiesce to higher taxes on the super wealthy. Then, right? Or they could be chill about that or like allow it to happen. They, they do to a point. They've got, they've, there's people on the, the pseudo left, like uh, Soros, who says, who endorses that. Who says, yeah, tax. Like, sure, but he's not going to yeah. push higher corporate taxes because if he did, he would lose his seat because that's literally illegal in America is to do anything that hurts the corporation. And I guess that's what you mean by eunuch. At this point, they are also sitting on top of a giant legal machine that basically tells them what to do all, most of the time. Well, and, and, and again, junctures, it, any of us are produced like they are too. Like, it's not like they exist in some place where they're the few people who have agency. We're all produced by the systems that have made us and things that have put us there. They're still bastards for sure. But yeah. again, just getting rid of them, it's just going to put someone new in their place. We've seen it throughout history. We've seen that. Set oh, up. right. That's, they are the results. They are the manifestation of forces. That slot would still exist. Even if Jeff Bezos yeah, died. Tomorrow, exactly. For sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's we got to change. We got to change the whole thing. That's a, to bring it back no. to the story. It's again, one of these for it's Harlan. Every time I'm able to like fucking just continually trace back every one of these things to like, he always, he's always so ridiculous. Um, but again, what is the setup? What is the thing? Well, this, the system is what he's talking about here because the university was just slightly too, too slow. They didn't have the money. This is the way mm-hmm. it worked out. It's not like, cause remember George's wife is the one who kind of sets this on, on going because George is, you know, fucked off or killed himself at that point. It's kind of unclear. Um, and so here comes record. And she's like, we really need the money because the farm is going to fail. Yeah, cause they need that. Yeah. So, so wh- who's at fault? Like, who's at fault? No, I would argue that the superstructure that creates the entire situation is, and here's the God right. literally looking at us going, hey guys, the, this is, it's, this is yeah. it. Like, come on. You, it's any of you, you any of you could, <laughs> systems wise, all you guys could just stop doing this, but you just don't. Everyone gawks, they take their three minutes. Everyone feels self-important. They go about their day. It probably makes uh, everyone slightly happier. Uh, they get their little slice of awe for the day, yeah. which just feels wrong. Exactly. <laughs> in some way. Yeah. In a gut way. Uh, cool. Cool. If, okay. Final silly question. If you found a supernatural being buried in your yard, which one would you most hope it was? And then what would you do with it? Hopefully not tie it up and show it off for two uh, bits of pop, but uh, I'll go first. Griffin, probably cause I've seen never ending story too many times, but I'd fly a fucking griffin around, bro. Is he a griffin in Never Ending Story? No, he's a, I think he's like a Chinese luck dragon. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. But I, I'm just saying actual, you know, mythical. 
I guess Chinese luck dragons are too, but I, I like a griffin. They got a lion body. I feel like that's like makes for a smoother ride, you know, the fur body um, versus the fe- versus what or scales or feathers. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know if I have that. Uh, See, that's why you should have read the questions. You'd have a funny answer. No, I don't have a funny answer. I don't think I even would. <laughs> like, because it again, it comes down to what you consider like a mythological god. Uh, uh, Taoists uh, believe Lao Tzu is uh, at this point they kind of look at him as a mythological god, or maybe he was someone who existed. We don't really know. He'd be yeah. top of my list because I'm that tends to be if learn shit. if I've got a if I've got a religious sort of side that would be that sort of thing. Otherwise, I'd probably. But he's got human level intelligence. I feel like you couldn't train him to let him ride you in the same way that you could a griffin. I, I probably couldn't <laughs> ride Lao Tzu. That's fair. He's probably yeah. a. Four and a half foot so tall, downside. ancient mm-hmm. old Chinese man. I'm probably not going <laughs> yeah, to quote one of my favorite uh, King of the Hill moments. But Lao Tzu would say, man, Lao Tzu lived in a cave and ate straw. <laughs> probably not that far off. No, but then uh, beyond that, um, it'd be doesn't like, make you not wise. I'd probably go back to like the Babylonians, like Inki or something like that, where it's. Ooh. um yeah, I know. Because it, the older gods would probably be more interesting. Because again, they're not like the god of things, even though they sort of are. It's a different yeah. setup. I don't know. I'm not big. I, I, I'm not that guy. I, I, I'm not that He's supernatural. Not I'm not a supernatural guy. I'm uh, yeah. Chris. Chris Carter, when he was making the X Files, would talk about. Um, it was my favorite uh, interview he ever did, and he talked about the poster on the wall in Mulder's office. Is like he's like that's me. It's like I'm not Mulder, even though I write this stuff. It's like, I'm the guy who wants to believe. I want to believe. But that doesn't mean I do. And I don't. I don't. I can't like put myself in any of those positions. <laughs> but I'd kill to have a UFO experience. And, yeah, for sure. I'm in the same. Here we go. If, if I had to choose a mythological character, I would choose a human. <laughs> nice. There we go. Nice. I'd choose Chris Carter. Uh, let's see. what I had a thought about that. Oh, it's just fascinating to me that almost everything, potentially everything in the universe is a spectrum and not a, I think it is because we arise from like vibrations, but uh, everything being a spectrum and not a thinking of that between uh, the poles of like man or I don't know, amoeba and God, the ways in which various pantheons are, they are us, they're a way to express our identity writ large on the stars, or they're totally not us and they're a way to explain the forces that we don't understand that oppress us or wilder us. Or, or it's anywhere in between. Or they yeah. are stories that we invent in order to pretend that we exist and to justify ourselves. Because the reality of any human is that we are a self-justification machine first and foremost, and none yeah. of us really exist. Bye. That's the end of the, no. Uh, I'm guessing since you didn't read the questions, you probably didn't come up with three stupid one-liners about the story. Is that accurate? I'm not, I'm not, we've been through this. I'm not a comedy writer and I am, I am not. I've had several non-comedy writers do this, but I also, to be fair in the email, always say, or don't, because obviously it's a big ask. If if I had to, if I had to, it would be somewhere along the lines of uh, Prometheus, Fava beans and a Chianti. Oh, folks, the liver, the vulture eats the liver. See, that's good. Uh, Okay, I'm going to rattle off my three real quick then so we can get out of here. This God of War Ragnarok boss fight is surprisingly metaphysical. And number two, sorry, Prometheus, that's just where the shovel landed. I think you look good circumcised. And number three, guy in the crowd after staring at Prometheus for two hours. If anything, I feel like I understand the Alien franchise even less. Oh, folks. Oh, uh, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's an okay one. That's, a good that's one. our like razor blade pie on the slab. Brooks, thank you so much for joining me. What a conversation. I love it. Always. Um, we will also be covering SRO with Sarah Griffith next time. If you're reading along, I'll also tweet that information. Um, but SRO, I forget where you can find it. I'll tweet that as well. Um, Brooks, you briefly mentioned the Deleuze and Guatri thing, but please uh, let people know exactly where they can find it. Yep, just uh, Google DGQC on YouTube, uh, the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective. Uh, we're a 3,500-strong Discord server that reads various Deleuze-related uh, books, but specifically I read every Monday, What is Philosophy? And then Tuesday, Anti-Oedipus. And Sunday, I do a random reading on a friend's YouTube as well. So uh, a lot of Deleuze. So I do a lot of Deleuze. And you're free to find and us. I've just, and it's, yeah. it's, it's a decent time if you like that stuff. 
really is. I've just just started diving through the archive and Deleuze is a very interesting cat. I was not familiar. I am finding it very uh, approachable. Like not, I totally can understand it and the points he's making and they're very interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm into it. Check it out. Uh, I thought there was something else. Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask before you wrap, because you said you had 1,500 books roughly behind you and only 50 fiction. Uh, did Snow Crash make it? Oh, no. 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 Uh, you say that with, oh, no. Okay. Especially I, I, I don't. Any, any, Not a fan. I think it has interesting things to I, say. I think it does, too. But I, I'm, I'm less a fan of any sort of dystopian world that ends in sort of a fairly nihilistic view of itself. And I do think Neil Stevenson is also not a very good writer. Ah, but along the way, we learn about, you know, how language confines us and thought is patterned through language and everything's a meme, including our beliefs about ourselves and the universe. Anyway, uh, this has been like Razor Flight by. I didn't get the answer I wanted, but I'm you very know, sorry. that's what happens sometimes. Very sorry. All good, bro. I'm going to zoom out of here to deliver a pizza. You do that. That's a Snow Crash reference. Bye, everybody. This has been a Small Beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!